Welcome to Kashris on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickle, editor of Kashris Magazine. And uh, tonight's show, I think, will be very interesting. Uh, first, I'd like to start off, since it is Elul, um, getting close to Rosh Hashanah. So a few, a few of the items tonight will be preparing for Rosh Hashanah. The, the first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, a lot of simchas, especially at the end of the summer. Uh, I have, I think, four in a row, four days in a row, uh, Baruch Hashem. And uh, last night I was at a bar mitzvah, and I want to share with you a little bit of a thought that uh, the rabbi said about the young man. It was about his rabbi was his rebbe in the seventh grade. He's going into eighth grade. Eighth grade rebbe hasn't even, maybe hasn't met him yet or doesn't know very much about him. And so the seventh grade rebbe came to the bar mitzvah. It was a very interesting uh, approach that he had. And he definitely tried to buoy up the boy, make him feel great. And he probably did. But I was sitting there, and I had questions. seems what he was talking about was that Moshe Rabbeinu was shown by Hashem that the Jewish people would go down, that they were going generation after generation away from Har Sinai. And even though, in many ways, there's more Torah, in some ways there's more Svarim, there are more people learning Torah today, maybe, than there were at the time the Torah was given. I don't know. Uh, certainly many, many, many people learning Torah. Certainly, certainly even just taking the, the num- numbers of yeshivas today, we probably have more Talmidim that learning Torah than they had maybe even in the time uh, before the war, pre-war Europe. But the quality, a lot to talk about. But I'm not going to go there. In any event, it's always the question, are the generations going down? Are they stagnant? Is there any upwards movement? But basically, if you get the idea of what, where we were and where we are today, it's much lower. So the Rebbe was relating how Moshe Rabbeinu was seeing these different doors going down. And then he hits our door and he sees this boy, the Bar boy from last night, learning in yeshiva, and he's the Rebbe, and this boy's the Talmud. And all year long, the boy is paying attention, asking questions, and answering the Rebbe's questions. And he said, at this moment, Moshe Rabbeinu sees that the, that the downward trend has stopped. And I listened to this. as a very, very nice boy. I mean, we related. Uh, a very nice boy. Definitely deserves a, a nice speech from a rabbi about how wonderful he is. But I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this and I'm saying, how could he say that? The boy may be a very nice boy, but he, until now, he wasn't even bar mitzvah. The level of the learning is certainly not what we hope he's going to be doing in base Medrash. He hasn't mastered uh, a big chalik of shas. He hasn't mastered anything, really. It, he's a he's a regular bar mitzvah boy in America. Now he may have very fine qualities, and he may participate excellently, and he may have impressed the Rebbe really sincerely that this boy is extremely good, which I hope he is. But to that extent, that he's checking the downward trend of Yiddishkeit in the world, that Moshe Rabbeinu is thunderstruck when he sees this boy learning Torah in the future. I thought it was over the top. And that's where I was until I started to think. And I think I understood what the Rebbe said. And maybe he's right. I'm reminded of a story, you heard it a few times, maybe even for me a few times, about Chafetz Chaim on Purim. There's a man, young man, very young, who's a little bit tipsy. It's Purim. And the, the Prophet Sayyim was in the room, and he wanted to leave. Somebody was with him, and the man blocked the Prophet Sayyim's path. And he said, I'm not going to let you go unless you promise me that I'll be in Gan Eden next to you. Now, maybe he wasn't so tipsy, but still in all, that's a strange thing. That's how you talk to the Prophet Sayyim. And the Chabad Chaim is going to give it to you? 
Chavetz Chaim thought a moment, and he said, I will guarantee that you will be next to me in Olam Haba if you take upon yourself never, ever, ever to speak again Lushen Hara. Never, ever again to speak Lushen Hara and you'll be next to me in Gan Eden. Well, extraordinary promise from an extraordinary man. I mean, how does he know, etc.? But maybe he did know, as we'll see in a second. And the man started to think. Remember, this man is a little tipsy. It's, it's, it's Purim, and he hasn't got his whole mind on things. And He's trying to stabilize and, and think this thing out. And he's thinking, and he's thinking, and he's thinking. He's thinking, I'll have to give up speaking Lashon Hor the rest of my life. I'm a young man. I'll never, ever be able to say so many things to so many people. And he started thinking and thinking into it. And the Chavetz Chaim said, push him aside. He doesn't mean it. And they walked out of the room. And he lost his opportunity forever. Now, when I heard that story years ago, it made a big impression on me. I would say a bigger impression than this story last night. It was a very powerful lesson that a person could achieve a tremendous thing and that if he did it, he'd be next to the Chavetz And I always worried about how could that be, you know, this and that and the other thing. But maybe I get it now. Maybe this is what it all means. If the person would take on not to speak Lush and Horror the rest of his life, he wouldn't be this tipsy guy, young guy, when he's older, he wouldn't be this light-headed young man who was threatening the Chavetz Chaim. If he would take it on and read that Sefer regularly, as, uh, as the, as the, as, as the uh, Manchester Rav said, if, if you would learn two halachas every single day, he said, I've never seen a family that took that on that didn't have Yeshua's in the Hamas. So if a person took on to learn two halachas a day, not even to say what the Chavetz Chaim asked this man to do, he's going to have Yeshua's in the Hamas. But if a person actually took on, like the Chavetz Chaim said, never ever speak Lashon Hara again, and to follow through on it, he wouldn't be the same. Not in 20 or 30 years, not even one day. If he really took it on, he would be a bit different person immediately. Maybe he wouldn't be on the Medrega, the Chodzayim. But as time moved on, he could reach a very high level because he meant it. He took it on and he meant it. And I think this is what that Rebbe meant last night. Not that this boy, who was 12 years old in his class, was asking such bomb kashas and, and gave every single tayrits and got a hundred and every single for hair and every paper was handed in. It was 103. Maybe he did get that. Maybe he didn't get that. But he's saying something else. He's saying the way he is now, if he will continue like that throughout his life, just as the Chafetz Chaim promised that young man, that he'll be next to him in Olam Haba, who knows? Maybe this young man would be the Gadol Hador. And if not in Lomdas and in Hakiris and in Chidushim, maybe he'd be Tzadik Hador. Maybe he would be a leader of tremendous capacity because he took the sincerity and went with it his whole life. So maybe the bracha from that rabbi last night is that, that yes, he could change the, the flow down away from Harsinai. One individual stopping things, turning it around in his own life can actually change the world. A thought for El leads me to a story that uh, was put out in a publication by Meshulchan Hakashrus from the Badats of the Eid HaRedis in Eretz Israel. It's a story about the opposite side. 
it's a very, very sad story. And it's true. But it's wild. What happened was somebody who had not been away in a long time, he, he decided to go away for Pesach, to stay in a hotel. And he's looking at the different ads or whatever, however he got it, ran into it, and, and he's trying to study these places. And he finds a, a hotel where it says on it, Galat Mahadrin Lo Shruya. Lo Shruya means it's not Gebrochts, and it's Galat uh, Mahadrin. So that's pretty good, right? Galat Mahadrin means very, very, very Galat. And Lo Shruya is the matzahs are, are made without uh, uh, non Gebrochts. Okay. And then on the bottom of the ad, it says, the Hashkocha of Rav El Yoshev. This was a few years ago, Rav El Yoshev was alive then. The Hashkocha of Harav El Yoshev. That's what it said. The Hashkochas Harav El Yoshev. So, didn't seem bad. So he goes there, comes in, and he makes a little rounds to see what's going on over there. And what does he find out? Uh, it definitely says those words. But um, he decided he wants to get proof of the, uh, from the hotel that it really is under Rabbi Yashav. And so, so he asked for a tuuda, the tuudas kashvus, the kosher certification letter. And what he found out was it was under the Rabbanut. All year it was ragil. It was regular kosher, not even mahadrin kosher. But for Pesach, a tour place took over, and they put in somebody, and they have now Ashkacha from the Rabbanut HaRashit of Eretz Yisrael, which is a, an entry-level Ashkacha, not necessarily the highest, and uh, definitely was a Ashkacha, but not necessarily the highest nature. And what's this thing about the, under the Ashkacha of Rabbi Yashav? Rabbi Yashav is the name of the rabbi. His last name is Al-Yashiv. Not the famous Rabbi Yashiv, but another person by the name of Al-Yashiv. Wow. So he goes in, and now he really has to do something, because he's stuck there. And he goes in, and he asks to speak to Rav Al-Yashiv, the Mashkiach. And we goes in and he talks to somebody there. And they started saying, Eifo El Yashiv, El Yashiv, Eifo El Yashiv. And the, all the people are saying it in the, in the, uh, in the kitchen. Eifo El Yashiv. Where is El Yashiv? And he hears in the voices, they're Arab. There goes Bishol Akum, everything no mashkiach on the premises. Finally, he gets a telephone number of the cell phone of this Rav Al-Yashuv. And he calls him up, and he's embarrassed by the things, he's, the answers that the Rav Al-Yashuv is giving him. And he, Rav Al-Yashuv tells him, I'm not there because I only come once a month. I didn't get this, how this fits together with the, the Pesach deal. But whatever it was, the point is, this is, maybe it's, proverbial story, but it's definitely the kind of thing that, that does go on in the real world. And yes, you got to get all of your things lined up. you got to get all your answers before you go. I get calls from people. I still remember as the calls. I got very interesting calls from people where they're stuck wherever they are, and they don't know about this, they don't know about that. Terrible, terrible thing. I have a number of... Uh, points that are made in that article, but I didn't put it together for today. Maybe we'll use it another time. The one thing I wanted to stress from what they're talking about in this article is that uh, the, the Badats is having trouble because companies don't want to make different packaging. They have the same packaging, exactly the same packaging, whether the Hashkocha is a Rabbanut, a private rabbi, uh, or the badats of the Eidach or badats of something else. And they'll have the same packaging, 
and just put the symbol on when it's under their hashgacha, which is a very hard thing to monitor for the kashrus agency and for the for the consumer. Of course, he just hopes that the right label goes on the right rabbi's work, and that's what seems to be very very common. There are another a couple of other issues that Badatz are complaining about, but that's a big one. Um, sometimes, like the in the uh, the difference between, let's say, the Rabbanut Harashit and the Badats would be in many, many areas. There'd be all kinds of things dealing with Maisris and Tumas and Maisris and stuff like that. Doesn't mean that the the, the other Rabbanim, the Rabbanut, doesn't take care of it, but it's not necessarily the same way qualitatively. So someday we'll probably go, I hope to go through that article a little bit because there's a lot of interesting material in there. But for today, that's enough of this topic. And that story of Eliyashiv is a classic. Another issue that is, is uh, taking place right now is what's going on in, uh, in Argentina. It seems the national government in, the North, in Argentina made a quota, a monthly quota of 30, I'm sorry, you know, 3,500 or 3,500 tons of kosher meat which doesn't sound like a little, it's 7,000 pounds. But 2,000, uh, I'm sorry, that's, I'm sorry, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah, well, that, that's not, uh, that's, t- I didn't do pounds. Uh, the tons is, uh, like, uh, a, a ton is, is, is 2,000 pounds. So it's like 70,000 pounds of kosher meat to export to Israel for a month. And the total amount for the year is 42,000 tons of meat being imported to Israel from Argentina. But interestingly enough, Israel imports 100, I'm sorry, I'll get my numbers right. Yeah, 100,000 tons a year. 100,000 tons. Each ton is 2,000 pounds. You could do the arithmetic. Right now, too too, uh, too much concentrating on the show to be able to do the arithmetic. But one hundred thousand pounds of meat is imported to Israel every year. Obviously, a lot of the meat is foreign meat. And one time, they used to try to get shrute, uh, not use shrute chutz. A lot of people were makpin on it. But today, it's almost unlikely not to, because there are beef producers. Uh, all across the world, that it can be done much more cheaply. And of course, you send over what they call it, Sevet. They send over a group to supervise or to do the actual Shrita and the uh, Badikas, etc. And it's done on a, on a very high level. I mean, whoever it is, whether it's the Rabbanut's level or it's the Badats of the Yerechares level, whoever does it. Uh, but the Shrute Chutz is not such a problem for most people anymore. Because the control in these factories is amazing, and uh, the pricing is obviously better for them, and that seems to be what's happening. But it seems to be at the same time, well, it sounds like a lot of tonnage going into Israel, and it seems that uh, Argentina is very cooperative, but there is a fight in Argentina about how much they should be sending out every year. And uh, someday, again, one of these things we might go a little bit more into it. But just to get the concept of how much meat is imported to Eretz Israel every single year. Now, oh yeah, I did did the homework here. It's 200 million pounds. 200 million pounds of meat goes to Israel each year. 200 million pounds. Okay. Interesting phenomenon is going on. You know, we just had the COVID, and uh, a lot of people, money is cleaned out. But there's always Jews that have some money, and it seems that two of the largest stores are opening right now. One is called uh, Aisle One. It's a big supermarket in the Brookhaven Mall in Passaic. It's going to be the largest shopping experience in that area. And the mall is going to include a kosher liquor store, Judaica store, a rooftop dining, uh, and, and 27, say 26,000 square feet in this Isle One supermarket. So this is a biggie, and it's, 
also, they're going to have 130 apartments and a wedding hall. So that's going to be something uh, that we're going to be hearing about as people try to go outside of New York for the weddings, for the chasinas. I think Besek is going to offer uh, a good alternative for many people to Lakewood. I don't know the pricing here, but my guess is that they're going to try to compete very heavily with Lakewood and to try to get the New York business going to uh, Passaic, which is much closer than Lakewood. You might see that coming up soon. I don't know the exact details. The other one uh, is, is going to be in Cleveland. And that one's going to be in Cleveland. I don't have any more details. Yeah, it's called The Grove. It's uh, opened in Cleveland already uh, on the site that was going to have a Seasons. It seems that the Seasons went, went bankrupt and uh, a co- company put this money up to get the thing called The Grove. That's a big supermarket now in Cleveland. And I think the trend is to these big supermarkets, as long as they're still making, they're going to be making money. Which leads us to a completely different area. I want you to know about this. I don't have the details in front of me. I have a few pages, all about different baseball teams. And I don't have the, int- the information about the different hashkachas involved and the details at all. So you're going to have to be me. And if you're interested in baseball or you want interest in the topic of finding out what's going on here, so you'll, you'll pay attention for the next couple of minutes. not not going to be that long. But the details about uh, the quality of the kosher, I have no idea. I just came across this list. came from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It talks about baseball and kosher, and it has a list of all of the companies that have kosher at their stadium. It's unbelievable. I remember when the first one started. I forgot, although I forgot which one was the first one. And uh, I, 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 and we're not talking now. Uh, you know, it's a, where it's a kosher style hot dog, or it's a kosher hot dog, but there's no koshkacha. We're talking about kosher food that many people would eat, whether you'd like this koshkacha, you like that koshkacha. But you're talking about something that's that's being manned. It's closed up. Uh, when it's not being used, it's got hashkocha, the mashkiach there, standing there while everything is going on. And it's, you know, it's done, uh, uh, hopefully each one is done perfectly, but that's not our topic today. So listen to some of these places, it's amazing. The Atlanta Braves, going in this alphabetical order, Atlanta Braves in Truist Park, there, there are no kosher items there, but they have vegan foods, including Beyond Burger and the smoked tofu sandwich. So that means it's 100% not kosher. If you don't have kosher items that are hashkocha, and you don't have hashkocha on this place, it sounds to me like that's a big fat zero. I don't know. Uh, if you'll tell me that there's some hashkocha in the background, fine, but not from the way it looks like over here. In the Arizona Diamondbacks, in Chase Field, no kosher items there, but they have vegan hot dogs, vegan chicken wraps, and vegan burgers. So people delude themselves into eating this stuff and thinking they're eating kosher. Okay, but Baltimore Orioles in Camden Yards, it's, uh, it seems what they have, the stadium has had a kosher food stand. Apparently the first, oh, here it is. This was the first one then, Baltimore Orioles. I suppose the Rabbi Hyman may have something to do with it because he did do certification on uh, on, on, on some of these uh, kosher places on the, in the fields, and it could be that this is under his probably even to till today. From day one in 1992, the stadium has had a kosher food stand, apparently the first certified kosher stand in any of the major league stadiums. It's now called Kosher Grill. Fans can find it behind the left field seats. So, of course, you've got to make sure you're going to the right place, right? And you've got to get set for a line because there's probably a big line there. And it's not cheap. Uh, better off bringing something in your pocket. <laughs> Wherever you can sneak in because uh, you're, paying not, you're paying a lot of money for these uh, little hot dogs.
The Boston Red Sox is the in Fenway Park. That's the oldest ballpark in the in American League, and it has the most unique kosher ser- serving device, a vending machine with hot kosher hot dogs since 2008. Now, I hope this hashkocha <laughs> on the machine, and I'm pretty sure nobody can get into that machine without the keys, and because they, there's money involved, so I'm sure that you have proper control if there is a hashkocha on it. And they have, uh, the stadium has vegan options, which of course is treif. Uh, the Chicago Cubs in Wrigley Field, they have a kosher cart behind section 227. And they also sell veggie burgers in several locations, which again is treif, as far as I'm concerned. Chicago White Sox in the guaranteed rate field has no kosher items, but they have vegan and vegetarian. Okay, so all that again is silly because no one's certifying it. And even if it's vegan, uh, it could be treif. So not an interest in that. Um, in fact, in Chicago, they have the Impossible Burger, which is, of course, OU certified. But so what? You have Goyim uh, cooking it. You have Goyim uh, preparing it. And, and no control, nobody there. N- no reliability. Cincinnati Reds, in great American ballpark, no kosher items at all, but they sell veggie dogs. Again, no, no worth anything. Um, now, Cleveland Indians, unfortunately, had and lost. The park had a kosher hot dog stand, and that's a thing of the past. There's no kosher items listed in the stadium's offering. So it seems to be, from the look at this list, that many places delude themselves into claiming kosher or vegan a kosher vegan style, or whatever they want to call it, and then another other places uh, do not, do not, not necessarily going to have any hashkacha, and so each person must do his own research to find out the actual list of those that are kosher certified, because this list obviously includes many that are not kosher certified at all. I, don't, I have no interest in finishing this list off, because it's the same thing reading again and again about different cities. And although while there are 30 or 40 of these uh, places, but not everyone has that, uh, that quality of kosher. We come to New York. The New York Mets. The Mets offer several kosher products, including hot dogs, knishes, and pretzels, which can be purchased near the sections 115 and 130 on the field level and on section 408 on the promenade, lo- promenade level. So that, uh, obviously, I don't know, again, if it's Ashkoch or not, but obviously in New York, you could get kosher. Now, in New York, in the Yankee Stadium, Strictly Kosher, that's the name of the company, which features items such as hot dogs and knishes, is in four locations. So obviously, whether it's really Strictly Kosher or not, again, I don't know who they are, but for sure, we are talking about options of kosher in New York. The Yankees also have plenty of vegan names. Okay, one second. Um, tells you where it's located. I don't know if I mentioned it. Behind sections 110, 214A, 229, and, two th- and 321. That's where the, you would find, behind those areas, you would find the, the uh, kosher avail- availability of kosher hot dogs and knishes at Yankee Stadium. So, again... Not too exciting to me. I don't go to baseball games. Wouldn't be interested in it. And uh, don't think it's a place, appropriate place to be. And if you go, make sure you do your research before and make sure that the kosher that's being quoted to you is a kosher that is of your level. Remember, once you're there, and if you don't have anything else packed in and you have come with a couple of kids, you're going to have a big bit of a problem if you don't, you're not ready. Two interesting things came up. One is that uh, there's a report on the growth of the Jewish community, which I thought was interesting, and it, it affects the kosher directly. In Lakewood, the Census Bureau, uh, the United States Census, gave out this information, that as of the recent census, there were 92,000 residents uh, in, in, 
in 2010, and it went up to 135,000 in the most recent census. So in other words, there's an increase in the last 10, I'm sorry, 11 years, there's been an increase from about 50%. About 50% growth in 11 years in Lakewood. I asked somebody, was trying to figure it out, I asked somebody, how many people were living here in Rabar and Cutler's time? So he told me he thought it was 40,000. I'm not sure that's correct or not, but the jump from 40,000 to 92,000, Rabbi Aaron was nifter in 1960, I'm sorry, 1962 or something like that. Is it two? I think 62. And, uh, and, and since there, 1962 to 2010, that's a lot of years. And the Lakewood community doubled in a little bit more. But since 11 years, it went up 50%. That's a big jump. And so that, that affects what's going on over here. I'm living in Lakewood, and I can tell you, every two inches, uh, there's restaurants and uh, eateries and foods and everything, all under one hashkocha, the KCL. Uh, almost the only hashkocha you see in Lakewood, although I know there are a few more. There's, I just haven't ha- happened to happen to seen them yet. So that's the Lakewood community. Now, what happened in Muncie and Spring Valley? Uh, from 2010 until now, they went from 49,710 to 60,000. So it's about a 20, it's a little more than 20% growth, a little more than 20% in 10 years. Okay, 11 years. It's not 50%, and the numbers are not as staggering as they are here in, uh, in Lakewood. Kiryas Yoel went up and since 2010, a 31.7% increase. The current number is about 28,000. Now, all of those are from people. You understand? Lakewood has a lot of people who are not Jewish, but, but Monroe, I'm sorry, um, uh, Kiryas Yoel is Kiryas Yoel. Only, uh, you're only going to have uh, from Jews there. In South Florida, the increase from, went from 47,000 in 1950. Are you ready for this number? Of course, it's going to be a big number, right? 47,000 in 1950 to 635,000 people today. I didn't do my homework, but it's more than... 500, maybe it's 600 or more. Um, no, it's much more than that. It's much more than that. It's, you know, a thousand percent. thousand percent growth. And change. More than a thousand percent growth. So this is amazing. This is the most amazing area is the South Florida. Of course, we heard the recent issues that happened in there, and there, there are always challenges wherever you live. But it's just interesting to understand that we're not talking now about snowbirds going down to Florida, somebody getting a little, you know, get upset on the cold weather in New York going down to Florida. We're talking about people living there, 635,000 today. Okay. Houston is also growing like leaps and bounds. It seems that uh, they, they have... Uh, they're up 35 percent from 1995. From 1995, they're up 35 percent. That gives you an idea about the changes. Now, the de- that is democracy. That's just the de- demographics, but the kosher affects it. But we talk- talked about that huge store in Passaic. That reflects the growth of the community and the strength of the community. And the fact that a community could support that kind of a major, major investment. So, yes, there, there is a lot of investment, but it's, it's, it, it has to be compa- compa- compared to what, how many Jews are living there and what their needs are. So it's interesting how the world is moving around and around into these 
big pockets of Jews. Now, although it's not Arab Pesach, I have to say Arab Rosh Hashanah, I don't know why I said Arab Pesach. It's not because I'm learning Pesachim with my Harusa, but it, I, it, it's not it's not Arab Rosh Hashanah yet. Although we're very close, I thought I would mention this today because I got it, and I thought it's something that you should hear about. It's a, it's from uh, Rabbi Vaya's book, you know, Bedikas Hamazon. It's prepared this year again. I, I assume it was updated. If it wasn't updated, then it's based on that book. Again, this is a one-page paper in English that's put out. It might not reflect exactly what you see in your uh, stores and you're buying here locally. It might be reflecting more Israel. I can't tell you that. It doesn't say here for the diaspora. It doesn't say. But I'm going to give you uh, a little bit of the information on the bottom also. So just keep that open in your mind and you can speak to any cautious professional to discuss further if it applies to us. So he has here about 10 items which are usually recited at the Hirat Zone on the night of Rosh Hashanah, the Simonim, and that's what I wanted to go through. So dates is one of them. Now, the dates are such that some kinds of dates are problematic some kinds of dates are not so problematic. There are higher quality and lower quality. But yes, they can have insects in them. It's kind of hard to tear apart a date, and therefore you could look, but you have to know a little bit what to do, or what to look for. So let me just tell you what it says over here. They're recommending slicing the dates lengthwise and open it to take out the pit. Not a big deal. Many... Uh, companies already have produced a pit, pitted dates, uh, and therefore they don't even have a pit anymore. If you see small dark crumbs in the area of the pit, don't use that date. These are leftover from the insects who were in there. One should then spread open the date and hold it up to a light, a window by day, or a light bulb. Nothing more. You don't need a light box. Regular window or a light, a light bulb, and examine it from both sides. If you see any dark object or shadow, then you have to check it to see if there's an insect in it. Uh, it is common to find in dates that, are, that have been stored for a length of time, small white clusters of crystallized sugar. That's not a, that's not a bug. That's not an insect. There's no concern at all. So again, you're looking, at, you have to see if it's white, cluster of crystallized sugar, then that's definitely not a problem. But if you see dark areas and you can't tell what it is, could be uh, from the leavings of the uh, insects that were in there. USA and Israel grown medjool dates, grade A, are severely less infested. So if you get grade A medjool dates from the US and in Israel, then it, it's less of a problem. It doesn't take much to uh, open a, a date. He, he's talking about cutting it this way, that way. I do it with my fingers, uh, whether, they, uh, whether they came with a date, with a pit inside, or it's already been pitted. I'll take a look against the light and very rarely find anything. But yes, sometimes you will find black, and sometimes you will find uh, the, the, these white uh, crystallized areas that he's referring to. Now, this is important. Avoid poor quality dates. For example, Pakistani, Algerian, or Tunisian. That could, be, that, that could have scales on it also, on the peel. Pomegranates. Well, examine the outside to see if there's a small hole in the peel. That would be a sign that the caterpillar went inside. But Then you have to, he says, that they cut open the fruit. If you see an area that turned brown, remove the area. But uh, it's not really common to find anything in a pomegranate. Anyways, the main thing is if something got inside, you could see there was an opening. Apples. So here, again, I think, as I said many times, the old days of Europeans used to cut up an apple, wouldn't eat it straight, and uh, most of us today feel relaxed eating an apple straight, as long as it doesn't show signs brown and uh, where, where may, maybe a worm got inside. Because worms do go into apples. 
I can tell you from my experience, because we had two apple trees in the backyard, and uh, definitely they get wormy. Okay, so you have to keep your eyes open for that, but usually it doesn't happen, and if it does, it happened, uh, you know, sitting around a, a poor quality uh, fruit store, or you didn't handle it properly when you came home, but otherwise it's, it's very hard to find uh, worms in, the, in apples anymore. So uh, he says like this, that high-quality apples have a chazak of being clean, which is we just said. Medium-quality apples should be examined on the outside, and uh, on rare occasions, possible found gray scales, brownish-gray scales on the peel, which can cause a reddish stain on the peel. One should remove the scale by scraping with the fingernail or with a knife. One may eat the reddish stain that remains. So bottom line is, you watch out for scale on an apple. Um, if you don't have any discoloration and you don't see any brown where, they, where, the, where a worm might have gotten in. You enjoy the apple. Next, they mention the gourd. It's normally clean. Just wash them. Figs, forget about it. He says here, fresh and dried figs are often infested and difficult to check. See if they say, methods of checking. I suggest you give up on, get, on figs. It's probably... All right, in, in my humble estimation, <laughs> this doesn't mean anything, right? Uh, strawberries and figs present major problems. Strawberries, uh, the, the, uh, amazing how those little uh, insects exist right around the seed-like parts of the, uh, been behind them, and uh, very, very hard to catch, uh, clean out. And uh, the same thing, I would say about figs, although it's a different thing. The, the figs have deeply inside uh, uh, wasps and uh, other 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 uh, insects that are trapped inside. And uh, when you're trained to see it, you will see it. If you're not trained to see it, you won't see it. It's, it you have to know why is it black, and you have to know... Uh, you know, why, you know, why we're saying this is an insect. If you haven't seen them, because something that's stuck inside a dried-out fig is not going to be uh, so clearly defined as an insect. It's something that people who are working with them are familiar with them and will say this is an insect. You might not agree. The next thing they talk about is black-eyed peas. That's a big problem. Of all the things on the paper, I think that's the biggest problem. Let me read a little bit about black-eyed peas. You got two types, fresh and dried. The fresh fig, uh, the fresh, fresh black-eyed peas, it's again in Hebrew they're called rubia. One should open the pod and check for holes, dark, crumbs, droppings, or signs that the worms have penetrated the beans. Infested, the pods should be removed. Now, if they're dried, if the uh, black-eyed peas are dried, dried, then you have um, two methods here. One is boiling. You can boil it, and you could do checking. And he described it here. It's a little bit involved, and I would recommend that anybody go to his website or get a hold of this piece of particular paper to describe exactly how to do it. It's very little, little involved to discuss here on this show. If you need this, I'm not going to volunteer, I think, oh yeah, okay, I'll volunteer. If you need it, you can send an email to me, kashras at aol.com, and just uh, say that you wanted uh, Rabbi Vaya's list for Rosh Hashanah, and we'll send it over to you. In other words, the, the dried rubia, the black-eyed peas, is the, is the biggest uh, issue that I didn't want to go through all the details. Carrots, no problem, unless you find a, you know, it finds a, something. I don't know what can, what you can find wrong with carrots. Okay, he says there's small cracks that, uh, and, and the, the, that's not an effect an infestation. So I I don't really understand uh, what what what, what what would be called a uh, an infestation in a carrot. 
Beet leaves or spinach. Well, now that's high-level infestation. Again, if you want this paper, you'll go get it, and I'll, you can read it to yourself. But spinach is uh, very, it's very hard to uh, get 100% clean of insects, and uh, I would suggest you skip it. Red beets. So he has a concern here, but I don't understand how there's uh, any concern with beets. Cut and remove the top of the beet. Look for the holes or signs of infestation. Continue to slice the wide slices into one and a half, one to one and a half centimeter. So this is uh, what you got to do with the beet. The slices should be checked for white caterpillars or tunneling from the caterpillars. I don't know if this is uh, currently the issue. I don't have my book open in front of me. If you have the chance, you look into Rabbi Vaya's book. And uh, oh, he, see, he does it at the end, he says. The checking can also be done after cooking. In USA, bread beets are normally clean. So forget the bread beets then. At least that much he told us. Okay. Leek. Now this is very important to hear. Because people do use leeks. It's doable. And it's not that involved. So let me just tell you what we do with a leek. Cut and remove all the green leaves. You're not going to eat them. Um, then you, you go to number two, you, you cut off the root area to one centimeter. You cut the root area around until one centimeter. And then you cut uh, the first outer layer, talking about uh, the leek, and cut the white remaining part lengthwise and separate all the layers. Soak the separated layers in water with a small amount of liquid soap for two to three minutes, and then rinse. Uh, sorry, then uh, rinse each flat layer very well under the faucet while rubbing both sides with the fingers. So that's a little bit involved, but that's what a leak is. And uh, I just want to sum it up again for you. Number one, you throw away the green leaves. Number two, you cut off the root area to one centimeter. Then you, the first outer layer. You cut the white remaining part of the length lengthwise and separate all the layers. Soak the separated layers in water. So he wants you to sec to take each layer. Some people do this with onions. I was not trained to do it that way, and I haven't accepted to do that. Um, so we we do is we cut off the top and cut off the bottom of the onion, and then we take off one layer of skin and we wash it thoroughly and made there's no sticky stuff left on it, which would mean that the, it's a thin layer that sometimes they get trapped inside those uh, insects. And that's uh, simple enough for us, but uh, some people uh, actually do this where they check each layer. Right? Check it or they wash it. Well, maybe they don't check it, but they wash it well. And so so uh, uh, the, the, the way it's formed, the, uh, the leak is similar, and therefore it would be worthwhile to... Um, to Examine each layer. That's what Rabbi Vaya is is expressing as far as the leek is concerned. If you don't eat leeks very much, so one time you'll prepare this as properly, and and just you know, ending up with a with the thing in the middle, and you're only you're taking each slice and you're you're washing it. So it's like uh, an onion, and you're just taking from the bulb. You're just ta- you're taking off the outer layer and on, on, uh, completely around the onion, and then you're taking each layer off and washing it in the water. Basically, that's it. Not going to find the, not going to be able to examine them very well because they're very very tiny. The bugs. That's leek. The fish head is a big one. What's uh, mentioned here, and I've seen this again, is that uh, salmon heads, which is very, very, very common, should be opened in order to remove the gills. You rinse it well, and you check for brown parasites. They're one and a half to two centimeters in length. It's significant, but they're very small. So... um, the the, uh, salmon, you have these lice, the salmon lice... So this is where they get stuck in, in the gills. It's, it'd be a big, bigger vote for a, a fish, fish store man to uh, check all these out. Some people who are very strict about it, and they have the fish store owner checking these 
for, uh, because we don't use heads alone, and, and everyone would sort of throw away the head or just eat a little bit around it or something. But here on Rosh Hashanah, you want to be able to have a whole head because you want to be a Rosh, not a Zanav. You want to be the head and not the tail. So therefore, people are getting, getting the heads of the fish, and this creates a big problem. If you can get somebody not just to put aside for you a head, but to check it for you, that would be the best. And some people, some stores I know, they do check the gills inside for you. So really don't do anything afterwards. But that's not too many stores. So be sure what you're getting and whether it needs to have an inspection in the gills of the uh, fish head. Uh, the honey is normally clean, nothing to worry about. So we have a few things to worry about. It's the leak, uh, the, uh, the dried uh, black-eyed, feet, black, black-eyed peas, and, uh, that's, and the dates. And that's basically uh, figs, of course, I would say skip them. And uh, the rest of we, we explained exactly what to do. If you have any problem, you always go to Rabbi Vai's book. It's written in English, Bedikas Hamazon, where everything is properly explained. So uh, we're going to end a little short today, sometimes we go a little long, and I'm going to wish everyone a wonderful week. This has been your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine, and uh, wishing you a wonderful preparation for Rosh Hashanah. We do want this year to be a very, very special year, and uh, the first thing to do, is, uh, Rabbi Miller says, is to appreciate last year. And then we can ask for this year. And uh, we can hope to do, I mentioned in the beginning, that we're going to make a little change in our lives. And that that, light, that change, if we hold on to it, could actually affect a major change in our life and have impact on other people as well. So it's uh, something to think about in preparing for Rosh Hashanah. If you need to reach us, we're at 732-534-9363 or 718 718- Three three six eight five four four or Kashrus K A S H R U S at AOL This has been your host, Rabbi Yosef Wicker, editor of Kashrus Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.